Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. All right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, we are doing something a little bit different than normal. We are actually going to be looking at a friend of the show's new film. It's Chris Cranock, who has been on Piecing It Together a whole bunch of times ever since the first... 10 episodes, somewhere like episode 6 or 7 or something he was on, and he's been on a whole bunch ever since, and now he's got a new film called Bizarro y Fantastico that he shot while he was on a trip to Europe, and it is a beautiful film, and I really wanted to get a chance to talk to him about it, and so in the process, I interview him as I would any filmmaker that I have as a guest on a special episode, as well as go through some puzzle pieces and some inspirations and talk about what the film reminded me of and find out what his actual inspirations were while coming up with this thing. So it's a great film. Uh, there is a way to see it, even though it's currently password protected while uh, they're out doing the whole film festival push and all that stuff. But if you want to watch it before getting into this conversation, check the show notes of this episode. There will be info on how to get to watch this film, or just listen to the episode and listen to this great conversation with Chris about the process of making it and all that. You'll still have a great time when you do get a chance to watch Bizarro Fantastico, but I do encourage you to watch this movie as soon as you can, because it's great. So before we get into the conversation, I want to remind you, as always, to make sure you are subscribed to Piecing It Together on your podcast app of choice. I know we've been doing a lot of special episodes lately, the Breaking It Apart and all that kind of stuff, but we've got a lot of new movies we're going to be covering over the next couple of months. And so make sure you're subscribed so that way you'll find out as soon as these new episodes hit. And you can also, of course, follow us on social media at PiecingPod, join the Facebook group Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, and uh, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Rosen. It's the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, has exclusive content from my music, from Piecing It Together, of course, and Awesome Movie Year, the other movie podcast that I produce. So lots of great content over there to check out. And uh, as always, the number one thing you can do to support this show, if you enjoy the show, is just share it. We are trying to get out to as many people as we can. If you share this podcast, you are helping so much. So share, 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 and thank you so much for listening. And let's get into this conversation about Bizarro y Fantastico with returning guest co-host Chris Cranock. 
guess Lily is here to stay. So, Lily, you're going to be a part of this conversation. I'm down. That's cool. A lot of cats in Rome. <laughs> there are. They hang around the streets. Yeah, they're just like walking out yeah. there and stuff. They hang around right where uh, where Caesar was murdered. Wow. There's this whole like little area that's a sunken in uh, thing of columns and, and ancient, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, ruins, thank you. And um, there's cats that hang out in there. Like tens, like ten, fifteen cats in there. Now that's an interesting documentary or or something Caesar's like Caesar's cats. Yeah, Caesar's cats. Like the the lineage that is still yeah. there and knows the stories and like you know they could. Yeah, so the thing is, I've always heard that there were cats. Like my mom went to Italy and went to Rome when she was like fourteen years old, and she would tell told me told me about the cats. Mm-hmm. So I was like, that's crazy. And then I went there, and there's all these cats still there, and they hang out in this particular square. Wow. Did, do you get to feed them, or... I personally didn't feed them, but I okay. think people do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're probably kind of violent, I would imagine, but... I imagine, yeah. <laughs> they're very treacherous cats, always. Well, Chris Cranock <laughs> is with us today. Uh, we're <laughs> you, you guys know Chris from his many appearances here on Piecing It Together, and I'm so happy to have him back on the show to finally talk about his film that he has talked up here on the show before, back when he was uh, planning on putting this thing together. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me to talk about my film. Yeah, so Bizarro e Fantastico. That is correct. It's a great film. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I As we talked about beforehand, I've watched it twice now, and I I think it's a really great film. It, it's funny. It looks great, and uh, I, I think it's, it's very interesting. I was telling you beforehand, I don't know if I knew... Even though you've told me about it so many times, I don't think I quite knew what I was getting into <laughs> when I when I started it up. But what what is your general like consensus feedback been so far? Have people been like getting what you've been trying to do so far? Yeah, I mean, I feel very uh, fortunate because I've gotten two main reactions, and I love both of them. Which mm-hmm. is that people are connecting like immensely to the to the subject matter and to the to the like what we're going for on a philosophical level, I was really surprised by how much they're connecting to the story. Mm. And then the other side is like total astonishment and confusion. And they don't really know what to do or say. And sure. I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, if it's negative or positive, but I love that they're just like dumbfounded. Sure. So I don't know if that's saying they didn't like anticipate me making something good or right. if it's, uh, or they're just kind of bewildered by it. Cause it's a little strange. I get the feeling, and and we'll get into some inspirations and stuff, obviously along the way. This being piecing it together, but uh, I get the feeling some of uh, some of your favorite filmmakers probably make films that were received in that way. I would like to think so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you guys might know if you've ever heard me on here that I'm a Kubrick fan. I think is an appropriate way to describe it. Sure. And one of my uh, so I was talking to the the editor of the film, uh, Brian Paulson. And uh, he was like a little shocked by like some people's reluctance to talk about the film. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what, welcome to making films with me. <laughs> right. You know, I was like, and uh, I just told him, I was like, listen, um, during the premiere of 2001 A Space Odyssey, an executive leaned over to another executive and said, well, that's the end of Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> so I'm not, not to compare myself against him or my film to 2001, but at the very minimum, I think at least a little confusion is uh, is like a is a good reaction. Sure, absolutely. Well, we're gonna go through this film. We're gonna get into some of some of the content of the film, some of the process, obviously some of the inspirations, some puzzle pieces, uh, and I've got some questions as well. I'm just gonna kind of mix it up along the way, though. Yeah. The way we're gonna do this. Hit me. I want to start off with the overture because that's where the <laughs> film starts. I uh, wait was. Was that something that you planned immediately from the get-go? I, I'm starting this film that I'm going to shoot 
with an overture or was it just like you started putting this thing together and you're like, okay, this is what it needs. Yeah, it was an, or- it really, it was not right from the get go. It was more of an you know an organic thing that we found about halfway through editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started, you know, the film we like to think is kind of like, has like a peaceful quality about it. There's sure. kind of a tranquil quality about the movie mm-hmm. and uh, you know, something that was really a big thing for me is I wanted to create a world. I wanted this to feel like its own self-contained little world that you then enter. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we were editing the film, it just kind of felt right with the pace of the movie and with that sentiment that we wanted to, you know, to feel like you're kind of going into this thing and existing within this world for 30 minutes uh, that we wanted to put an overture. And it was a, it's a little brazen because most short films don't have them. Most feature-length sure. films don't have them. Right. But to me, this is only a short film in terms of its length. But there's really, to me, there's no, it shares no other qualities with a short film. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a film. It's just 30 minutes. Right. So right. I really wanted to, uh, to make people, especially in the era of TikTok and you know, five-minute videos, five-second videos, just to sit down and, and uh, relax and really get into the world. And it, it's, it's totally sincere. It's not a kind of a, you know, a, a, a rib nudge. Mm. You no, know, I really wanted people to just sit down and relax and enjoy it. And I, I tried to make it as beautiful as I could. So okay. yeah, it all kind of just organically happened while we were making it. All right. Well, going kind of chronologically here, uh, my other question about the opening is, of course, we've got the Janus films and the uh, Dino <laughs> De Laurentiis uh, logos. Why them? Why those in particular? Yeah. So Janus, he's uh, a winter god and my star sign. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. no uh, <laughs> there's, there's some truth to that, but that's not why. Um well, because so Janus used to be a film production company, sure, and now it is a uh, it's a kind of um, a company that works a lot with Criterion Collection for restorative purposes. It's a restoration film uh, company, and so it's uh, I I really respect them for for what they do and their work with the Criterion Collection. But it's also just a fun wink because I would love if one of my films started with that Janus logo coming sure. up with all some of the great films that I love. So yeah, no. Yeah, just, I know. I know you love Paris, Texas. I just watched that the other day and saw yeah, that logo, yeah. and I was like, ah, there. Is. Virtually every Criterion <laughs> film has that logo because they are a big part of restoring the films and kind of how they end up with the Criterion collection. So any like hardened Criterion fan will either laugh or be disgusted when they see it with my film. So I'm not particularly sure which response it will elicit. But mm-hmm. uh, and then Dino, I mean, that's just an iconic Italian distributor, mm-hmm. and uh, to me. Bizarro is an Italian film in every sense of the word. For people right. that are listening that don't know, it's in the Italian language, and it was predominantly shot in Rome, Italy. And it's a throwback and kind of a an homage and a an, like an ode to the uh, the Italian cinema and the French cinema. Uh, part of it takes place in Paris, but of like the fifties and sixties. So yeah, there's just a lot. Of, it was just a meaningful company to me, and I thought it would put a certain feeling of nostalgia and and authenticity to this like you know old school feeling right sure and you know that actually is a good lead into to the next question which is did did italy and europe come first or did the idea come first when when it came time to make this thing what was was it an idea that you had and then managed to make this trip happen (laughs) or, or was the trip coming up and you were like oh i got an idea Kind of a combination of both, actually. So mm-hmm. I, my writing process, there's like a long long gestational period to where I have ideas that float in my mind for long periods of time. And there were, there were shreds of that with what eventually became Bizarro. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was going out to Rome 
to speak to a production company that was interested in possibly financing a larger film of mine called Madame X, which is something I've talked about on here as well. That's sure. The, the Kubrick Association with Mrs. Kubrick giving me her paintings and, and working with Doug Milsom, the cinematographer of Full Metal Jacket, that, that thing. So that's kind of like our bigger main project that we've been working on for years now. And so I was out there for business. And I had this idea floating around, and I always wanted to make a film in Italy. And so the stars is kind of aligned, and I decided to just jump in and do it and mm. you know, while I was there for other things, but shoot it while I was there. So it was kind of like an opportunistic thing, but but the the central core idea had been uh, had always been in in mind to do there. Right. Yeah. Because honestly, with this story, and we haven't gotten too much into the story yet, um, or or what exactly happens in the film, but. I, I can't picture this taking place here in Vegas, especially, but even in America in general, like it just feels very foreign, you know? Yeah. Well, the, the thing is, is that I don't know. I mean, thank you. First of all, that's, that's a compliment to me because one of the things I've been very humbled by is a lot of Italians are like, it's so Italian. Right. How the hell did you make this movie? Yeah. I don't speak Italian. I don't speak French. So they, they're, they're, they're confused for a lot of reasons, but that's why that's one of the reasons. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I set out to make a film that felt a, Italian in its bones. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, it's about food in some ways. Sure. Uh, it's about kind of this heightened sense of reality. You know, it's funny, a big influence, kind of starting with a puzzle piece, if you're interested, would be, you know, Fe, uh, excuse me, Federico Fellini. Sure. Um, who I dedicated the movie to him and, and Pasolini. But Fellini, it's funny, he used to have the, you know, he makes these films that seem so wild and crazy. Uh, and you, when you, you're an American and you watch them and you think, oh, he's, you know, he's just making all this up. He has this wild imagination. And then you go to Italy and you're like, oh, he's a documentarian. You know, <laughs> sure. you know, Italians are nuts mm-hmm. and they're whimsical and the whole country is so beautiful and, and funny and, and exaggerated in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to make a film that like couldn't be done anywhere, but where, it, where it's done. Mm-hmm. That, that's the case for, for everything I do. I mean, I really, whatever I, whatever I make, I want it to be that at its molecular level. So I designed Bizarro to be the most Italian film it could possibly be. Right, right. Well, you know, you're getting a couple uh, influences in there. So let's jump into a few that I had written down here. Um, So obviously in in the film, uh, the, the main character ends up uh, getting visited by death, the Grim Reaper, and has the opportunity to possibly get out of it. And uh, there's even the the tease of the chessboard. So mm-hmm. of course, I immediately thought of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, and, and the Seventh Seal, of course, as well. Sure. Sure. <laughs> but uh, those two influences were those things on your mind as you were like kind of coming to this story. Well, sure. So the se- I mean, not Bill and Ted necessarily, sure. <laughs> but uh, but the Seventh Seal is one of those films for me that you know changed my life. It's one of the core foundational films of my life the way that like the shining in 2001 are or or um la dolce vita is Mm -hmm. there's like really core films and and the seventh seal is one of those i kind of feel like i'm I'm always making the seventh seal or i'm always making the shining even when i don't try to i don't really particularly want to but that's kind of what ends up happening Mm -hmm. so yeah so when there is a lot in common with the seventh seal but i always am looking for um a way to make it my own mm-hmm. and redesign it from the ground up. So yeah, it wasn't necessarily deliberate, but I'm just I'm just attracted to that concept. Mm-hmm. I like death. I, 
And I like to personify death because I think it's interesting. It's really the only interesting thing to talk about mm. uh, to me anyway. And it's, you know, every, it's the biggest stakes there, there is. And so, yeah, so it was definitely an influence and it was conscious and subconscious and unconscious and all those things. So it's an interesting year for a movie about death like that to come out, you know, um, with yeah. everything going on right now. Yeah. I mean, I shot it in October of 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of sequences of like a cloaked death figure roaming the streets of an empty Italy, an empty Rome. And in hindsight, that became so COVID appropriate yeah. that it kind of became, had this new significance about it, these empty, you know, Italy being hit so hard and Rome being hit so hard. So having like death stalk the streets of an empty Rome, uh, yeah, it has kind of a strange new significance that hasn't eluded us. Yeah. What? Some of those like philosophical ideas that come with the death character and uh, the way he talks about death itself and all that, were those things that you've been pondering for like years and stuff like that, things that are on your mind, are they things that you agree with or, or that like your own personal beliefs in any way, or are they things that just made sense for the character and the story? No, they're me. I mean, that's the thing yeah. is that both characters are, are me essentially, because mm-hmm. I'm always thinking about those things uh, about death and kind of trying to rationalize them like I think many of us do. I think there's really only two options that we have as people that know that we're going to die, which is we could either ignore that information or we can try to rationalize it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a rationalizer. And so I think a lot about what it what it is and what it means. And I'm not a particularly spiritual or religious person, so I have a lot of humanist slants to the to the philosophies that I adopt as my own. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but I mean, but, but I mean, as, as much as I quote unquote believe what death has to offer in this particular film, I'm also this other character too, who's scared and unsure and wants some type of significance in their life. I think a big part of Bizarro is to remind people that being a kind person and a good person is significant enough that we don't need to all be Mozarts and all be, you know, Einsteins, Mm -hmm. even though I want the Mozarts and the Einsteins of the world. I'm not saying don't be ambitious. I'm just saying that, you know, be a good person and that's enough. (laughs) So I think that that's, uh, like I'm, I'm conflicted about my philosophy. It's not something that I, that's why I say quote unquote believe. It's like, I believe it, but you know, today I do. Yeah. You got to always be (laughs) grappling with something that big. Sure. Yeah. I don't have any answers. And so I don't hope the film doesn't have any answers. Sure. It presents it kind of matter of factly, but I still think the, the confusion of it, it hopefully is still there. Well, especially with the, uh, the big, uh, trial of death, that, that big moment, that certainly doesn't give you any (laughs) solid concrete answers, but is very funny. Yeah. Well, thank you. That funny is an interesting way. I mean, people have described it as peaceful. People have described it as terrifying. (laughs) And now you've described it as funny, which I think is equally as valid. Mm -hmm. I like that. I mean, I'm proud that we made a film that, is about ideas that are so complicated that depending on who you are and what you bring to the film, it's different. It changes. Sure. You know, the experience is totally unique to everyone that watches it based on their own life and philosophy. So I'm very honored that a creative idea that I had uh, is able to kind of like splinter into so many meanings for so many different people. Sure. And I'm particularly proud of it because I'm, I'm accomplishing the most while doing the least. Right. I'm doing nothing. Yeah. I mean, you get, how long is that? It's that, one minute. It's one, one full minute. You're getting one full minute of extra screen time yeah. uh, out of a black screen, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, it's funny. I've only watched it with a handful of people. I mean, COVID's being so weird. So sure. So we don't have a big audiences yet to test and, you know, but 
it takes about 15 seconds for people to ha- like have to speak. <laughs> they have just to break the tension. Right. So there's like an, there's an initial confusion of like, oh, is it over? It's not over. No, there's no credits. There's no music. People aren't leaving. What, what's going on? Yeah. And then it's, oh, it's death. And then, oh, shit, it's death. Mm. So I, I like the kind of progression that people go through. And then they have 45 seconds to just kind of ruminate on that. Sure. Or check their phone. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm going to go into another uh, potential influence here. Uh, Jim Jarmusch. Oh, okay. I, I, not a particular film in mind, but just his kind of style of things just really kind of taking their time, just kind of, uh, you, you get in with these characters in a specific setting and really just kind of get a feel for both the setting and the characters through long kind of drawn out conversations, which essentially that's what the film is, is, is a long drawn out conversation between these two characters, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think about Jarmusch as a potential uh, influence on this? Yeah, I would definitely agree. I don't. It, it wasn't something that I was thinking about, but he. You know, it's it's funny that you mention it. He's actually an American film director. Pretty sure he's American or Canadian. Pretty sure he's American. I, I think, think so. Yeah, American. He's American. Yeah. And uh, he seems like a Canadian, though. <laughs> he does kind of like, seem, he like, seem a like a Canadian, <laughs> but he's not. He's American. Anyway, so uh, he uh, he likes to make films in other languages, mm-hmm. or he likes to you know explore different cultures. Sure. Uh, he's a big um, world cinema connoisseur like I am. And so I think he feels connected to those older films of the past, the way that Bizarro makes me feel connected to them. Yeah. You know, I like to think that Bizarro is kind of like, has this lineage to these older films. Uh, and I think he does that too. So I can definitely see that. And in terms of his pacing, yeah, I, I think so. Again, that comes from an old school style of filmmaking. I'm a big fan of a guy named Ozu, a Japanese film director who right. really takes his time and a guy named Andrei Tarkovsky, the great Russian director. And he always said, you know, if you thought my film was long and, bo- and long and dull, it needs to be duller and longer. <laughs> you know, so the people that walked into the theater and saw the wrong movie have time to leave before the action starts. Right. So I think that, you know, I, I come from, a, I like meditative films personally. Mm-hmm. And now there's always too long, right? Long, you know, can become too long. And where's that threshold? And it's a risk. It's an artistic risk. What I'm really proud about, uh, I say, I'm going to probably say that a million times. Sorry if it sounds so repetitive. <laughs> That's I'm fine. I'm proud about many things. I'm the same way when I talk about my music. Okay, cool. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I'm proud about the film, of course. Proud of the work so many, you know, a lot of people put in to make it what it is. Um, the fact that it's 30 minutes, but to me it feels like it's 15. Oh, like sure. It really moves. So it doesn't, I mean, as, as paced as it is, it really books. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, it definitely moves along. And like, I would say even that, like the second time, like the fact that I knew what was, you know, happening, I was kind of like waiting for the beats and stuff mm-hmm. like that, you know, so it's like, it definitely, it, it, it moves surprisingly quick for, for the runtime. Yeah. Being a film that is paced mm-hmm. and being a film that's long for being a short, yeah. I mean, 30 minutes and I deliberately made the film 30 minutes for like kind of many reasons, essentially, well, first thing is the story. You know, it's like, I, the, I'm, I'm, I think most short films falter and fail because they're trying to fit two hours into five minutes. Right. Uh, or, you know, it's like it needed 10 minutes, but they don't want to make a 10, they don't want to go to a film festival, the 10 minute movie, so they squeeze it to seven. Mm-hmm. And like they don't, they don't really appreciate short films as a medium. Right. And so I look at short films the way that someone like, James Joyce looked at short stories. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they are they are their own thing. Uh, you know, a novelist can't always write a great short story, and a short story story writer can't always write a great novel. 
And I think so with short films, they're so interchangeable with, oh, I can just take this story and condense it. Mm -hmm. So 30 minutes to me was very deliberate. That's the, that's the amount of time that Bizarro needs. Yeah. That is the, it's a complete story. It's yeah. not anything longer. And then also too, it's that, that for most television now on streaming services, 30 minutes is common for a show. Mm. And so I wanted to show my ability to handle more long form storytelling that would still fit into a watchable time slot. Sure. So it was, there was all kinds of like practical and artistic reasons, but, but yeah, the pacing was huge to have it be slow and yet move so quickly was our main goal. Well, two things about that pacing, um, which we'll, we'll tackle them separately, but, uh, one is the dialogue and the other is the music because mm -hmm. um, those are the two things that are really taking you through. I mean, the film looks great as well. And Thank I mean, you. of course, you're shooting in these beautiful places in Europe. And uh, but, you know, the dialogue is really, I think, central to the film, to, to what makes it successful. So let's go there first. Sure. Um, you know, obviously writing in a different language and mm -hmm. everything that I mean, what's that? What's that process of going back and forth? I'd imagine with a interpreter or something like that. Yeah, so I so I wrote the script originally in English, of course, uh, and it has a very specific type of writing. You know, I started as a writer, so this, the the screenplay always has to be at a certain level. Although I'm becoming increasingly suspicious of words. You know, I mean, I tried to make this movie. If I could say, if I could make a movie that doesn't have any dialogue at all, I would. Yeah, you know I mean, <laughs> right. So, hey, but that, one of these days we're going to work on a music video. Exactly. And then there, there you go. You, you get go. your chance. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the first eight and a half minutes of the film has virtually no dialogue. There's right. only a little bit. It's sparse. But yeah. So if I can tell something without speaking, I I do that because this is a visual medium. I hate mm -hmm. compulsive talking, and I hate, especially films that are, kind of. Uh, low budget or indie films, they're usually conversations, and I can't stay. There's nothing more uncinematic than a conversation. It's right. just horrible to me. So I, I try to make a movie that was essentially two people talking not feel like that. Sure. You know, I went across the world to make sure that I didn't do that. <laughs> right. But I appreciate the, you know, the compliment of the dialogue because it was still as thought out as anything would ever be. And uh, so, yeah, so I wrote it in English, had it translated. I sat with an Italian translator, and we, we went line by line. And we translated it as exactly as we possibly could to my original words, which is exciting because it's challenging to really you know, convey what you're saying sometimes in a different language. And I think we got pretty darn close. It's virtually exact. Mm -hmm. uh, and then one step further, I guess if there was a real change, it was that, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with this and a lot of people listening are, but in Europe and then in, in Italy in particular, there's a lot of dialects. There's so many dialects, like sure. by neighborhood. It's crazy. It's mm -hmm. not like by region. It's like by the next straight over, they have some <laughs> right. different slang. It's totally nuts. So uh, we shot the film and the film takes place in a little Roman town, a little Roman like, neighborhood called Trastevere. And so the translator helped me tailor the dialogue so that the person living in Trastevere will speak with that slang. Mm -hmm. The actor playing that character is from the South originally. So we knew that there would be a South, like a Southern twang to sure. it. And then we also made sure that death spoke an authentic textbook Italian because death isn't technically Italian. Right. Right. So he doesn't really know the slang. So now on American to American audiences, this would be lost entirely. Right. But to the, to the Italian audience, they would know that the main character is a Southerner who moved to Rome and lives in Trastevere and that the and that the uh, that the death character is not actually Italian because he speaks this kind of hmm. stilted Italian. 
So that was a process and it was extremely fun to do and while maintaining my original voice and creativity. And that was, a, that was another challenge. So it's interesting. Did, did the actors uh, have any input in any of that? Uh, virtually none. Yeah. The thing is, is that they didn't speak a lot of English. Uh-huh. So, and I didn't have a translator Not on room set. for collaboration in that sense, kind of. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm, t- I'm, I'm honestly not too precious about my words. Mm-hmm. I feel very, very fortunate that most actors, when they read my material, they say, well, that I'm going to just say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to, you did the work for me. I don't want to come up with it. Uh, but I'm open to improvisation for sure. And, uh, so there was a language barrier on set. There was also a time barrier. I didn't have a lot of time. And I also couldn't edit, edit this movie mm. if they were inventing things. So I told them, I said, you have to say it exactly as it's written so that I can edit this thing later. I don't speak Italian. Mm. So they, unbelievably, they were, the actors were incredible. Every single one of them, all four of them, but the two main Italian ones, Roberto and Cosimo, they memorized their lines. They hit them exactly. And then when I brought the translator back in after, we, we had edited the film in a rough cut. And I brought the Italian translator back in to watch it and make sure that everything was right. And we had edited phonetically, like based on the script, mm-hmm. uh, based on the phonetic spellings and, and pronunciations of the words. And there were no mistakes. Nice. The actors had hit every single line. There wasn't a dropped line. There wasn't a changed line. And there wasn't a flub that's amazing. in the entire film. And so that's all the actors. So what they lacked in creative input, they really put forth in professionalism and they really killed it. So real quick, how did you find them, the, these actors? So the, the French actors, uh, well, I mean, everything was a miracle, but the French actors, I, uh, I found a, I found an, a, a English speaking French acting class in Paris. Hmm. So I knew that these French actors would be learning English because they want a more successful career in the States. And I reached out to the instructor and I told him who, what I was doing and if there was any actors that'd be willing to volunteer their time and blah, blah, blah. He got back to me with a bunch of names. I reached out to the two people that on the top of the list, they responded. We corresponded. They were wonderful. We went with them. So it was, it was a miracle that it happened so easily. Wow. Uh, Cosimo is actually the partner of my uncle who lives in Rome. And he is an actor and a musician. And he's been in a handful of Italian films. And we've always talked about kind of collaborating together. Hmm. Um, he was very suspicious of the script at first. He was like halfway through, he's like, I don't know what's going on. And then he, I was like, we'll finish it. And he finished it. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. Uh, he was not like, oh, I'll just do this. And then he helped me. I went through a handful of actors uh, in Italy through a mutual friend of mine who's an Italian uh, composer. And they just wanted too much money, unfortunately. This was just a very low budget film. And there was a guy that was in Skyfall that wanted to do the film, but he was just too much money. I said, I'm sorry, this is a you know, small project. So it just kind of went through and through. We had another guy that was good, but he dropped out. Um, not really sure why. Again, this, this is all in Italian. So right. like he's leaving <laughs> yeah. me messages on WhatsApp in Italian. And I'm like, I have to translate them and you know, figuring out that he quit mm-hmm. you know, two weeks before I go out there, that kind of thing. So finally we found Roberto because he was an old acting mate of Cosimo's. They had done theater together. And he came out and, and did the film, and he's brilliant. So Cosimo and Roberto are phenomenal. So that was just kind of wild luck. Uh, and then, yeah, we had rehearsed and talked over WhatsApp and over the phones and while we prepared. Amazing. And so then, I, you know, since we're on the, on the topic of, you know, connecting with these people across the world, uh, the locations, um, like, was there a process to being able to shoot in these places or? Asking. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, the whole kind of knocking on doors and saying, Hey, can we do this? And can we use this and calling in favors and you mm-hmm. know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, the thing is, I'm, I, you know, again, short films, uh, they, a lot of them are passion projects as was Bizarro. Sure. But they, they often lack a little bit of polish because they're just people that are really trying to make something and they're, they're typically, their strengths are like in their ideas or in their writing. Yeah. So those are the forefront of a short film. And I wanted, again, I, I didn't want Bizarro to be a short film in any other thing than length. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I took set design uh, very seriously and finding the locations and lighting those locations extremely seriously. So it was a process and a lot of favors and friendship, you know, let us use it and crash on their couch, that kind of thing. But it worked out. It gave it a certain level of professionalism that it needed. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, it definitely makes it something that you haven't seen before. Like, you know, I don't care how many short films you've sat through at different yeah. film festivals. You haven't seen this before. You know what well, I mean? That's a huge compliment. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, my goal is to make stuff that you've never seen before. That mm-hmm. people are going to go, how did they, how did he do that? Yeah. You know, I was, I was my only crew member. So I lit it. I ran sound, I operated camera, I was the director of photography, I wrote the script, I produced it and directed it. Yeah. And uh, I, had a, I had a helper that did the clapboard for the yeah. sound. <laughs> yeah. But that's it. And, and in two languages and in two countries. Yeah. So I basically, I, I'm only, I really only feel comfortable kind of like working at my extremes. Mm. You know, I, I, if I can do it, I want to be there. I want to be on the edge. Sure. Of what I can do at all times. And this was supposed to be a small movie while I was trying to get money for a bigger movie. Right. And the and the and a big part of the film's motivation was, you know, let me show people what I can do on nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially since we're in this pursuit from Adam X to get someone to trust me with a large sum of money. Right. You know, this was a, you know, this was a, a film I care passionately about, but it was also a, a, um, a like a, show and tell type situation where I wanted to like, no, this is, look what I can do on oh, my yeah. own in the most extreme circumstances. So, uh, yeah, it was a wild experience, but I feel very, I mean, so to kind of wrap the kind of wrap that up, I came back to the States and I didn't know if I had a movie, mm. right? I had shot this film and I thought, well, who knows if it's good? I shot it. So let's see, let's see if this is, you know, crap or whatever. Right. You know. And I and Brian Paulson and I found him. He and I had worked you know, something you know together because of a mutual friend, and we had clicked immediately. He's a really excellent guy. Just same temperament, same work ethic. Just a sweet guy. Extremely collaborative. Extremely intelligent. Emotionally intelligent, and very very talented. So we just jived. And so I said, Hey, you know, do you want to help me put this movie together? I don't know if it's a movie. Mm-hmm. And I and so I waited to tell him it was an Italian. I waited until I was already at with you know working on his, on the computer, and I was like, oh by the way, it's in a different language. You know, mm-hmm. and he said, of course it is with you. So he you know he wasn't that surprised. Uh, and we looked at the early footage, and we just did a very basic color correction, and we went, oh, there's a movie. There's a movie here. That must be a sigh of relief right there. It never ended, really. You know, it's yeah. like because I was in charge of every department. Mm-hmm. I was waiting to find every fatal blow. You know, sure. I was like, oh, the sound. There's no sound here, you know, right. and that never happened. So we, you know, I got you know lucky, and I'm very happy about uh, what I was able to pull off on a limited, limited amount of time and money and crew. But uh, no, it was, it, uh, it it turned out, yeah, it was big. So the sigh relief one was over. Yeah, yeah. What did you uh, What did you use for shooting and all that? I used cameras, lights. 
and audio equipment that I could fit into a suitcase. I was going to say, yeah, because to make that trip, like, you know, there's only so much you can really bring. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I'm, I won't go into major details about what I exactly used because mm-hmm. there are people out there that are convinced that I shot it on film mm. and I'm going to let them be convinced. Sure. sure. So I'm not, I won't give all, away, all of my secrets away about how I actually did it, but mm. everything I used for the entire film fit into a carry-on suitcase. Okay. I mean, a carry-on by American standards. Okay. I had to pay $400 extra in luggage <laughs> fees on the way back from France. <laughs> right. So let me be clear. Yes. American carry on yes okay makes sense uh so let's let's jump back to the music for a minute here um so uh were these any of these selections things that you had chosen beforehand or were they all once you saw the edit you started like figuring out what would work and and then also kind of goes along with that were were some of these pieces things you were familiar with ahead of time Yes, so all the pieces were I was familiar with, but a lot of them come from Italian films of the era, right? Uh, as a way to kind of do another uh, a nod to those films. Uh, some aren't though; some are original compositions that are not not original for me, but there are um, artists that weren't made for movies. Is kind of what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. There's an artist, uh, kind of a, a virtually unknown. 60s French artist named Andre Pop mm-hmm. that I have known for a long time and really love and have always wanted to use uh, his music in my films. And uh, so this was an excellent opportunity given the kind of environment and the, the, the setting and things like that. And so to answer the first part of the question, I did not know what music uh, I was going to use. There was actually a piece of music I thought I was going to use that I ended up not using. Mm-hmm. I found something that I thought fit better. Okay. And so I just I discarded that. But everything else was found after the fact. Mm. Once I was starting to see the edit and starting to know what it needed. And to me, there's no real system for that. Sometimes I hear a song that's very inspiring to me. And so I'll like write thinking of that as a theme. Sure. Even if it doesn't end up in the final film, sometimes there's like a musical North Star that right. leads me through the process. Yeah. And then sometimes there's not. Sometimes I have to find the music all after, all after the fact. So yeah, I don't, I don't really have like a system regarding music. It's just kind of whatever, you know, whatever there might be. Yeah. And uh, with Bizarro, it happened to be that it was all done after. Yeah. It, it all meshes together really well and uh, definitely works. So thank you. Yeah. Good job putting all that together. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go to another uh, possibly out there puzzle piece okay, for like you. Um, so I, this, this movie, uh, for those who haven't seen it, although you should have seen it by now, because of course we're getting into spoilers and stuff, but uh, it does it does mix some bigger themes and ideas uh, with with some toilet humor sure. uh, in there as well. And I thought of a movie I love from a few years ago called Swiss Army Man, okay, <laughs> which I think really expertly. Uh, it deals with mental illness, which is different issues. This is the issues of death, but in there it deals with mental illness and loneliness and the need to connect. And a whole lot of fart humor, and sure. in this there is a uh, a lot of, I, I should say, really well done uh, oh. stomach gurgling Thank and you. and farts and belches and things like that. And so there, there's there's toilet humor in this. I, what do you think of that that as a puzzle piece? And then also, where do you where do you draw the line in balancing that kind of humor with something that's a little bit uh, more elevated, so to speak? Sure, that's a good question. That's really good. I think it's a great puzzle piece. I I don't, again, I don't know if it's conscious, Mm -hmm. but I think movies like that or like The Lighthouse, for instance, now that I'm just thinking about it. Sure, sure. They they have made it a little bit more mainstream to go there 
in art. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I, you know, it's funny, Brian and I are celebrating the completion of the film, and so we're watching movies together and having a good time. And I showed a movie, a movie called Amrecord by Fellini, which mm-hmm. was definitely an influence for the movie, more on the frontal part of my brain. Um, and there's a lot of like potty humor in it, and it's mm-hmm. because it's about children and school growing up and adolescence, and so there's adolescent humor in it. So I can definitely see uh, Swiss Army Man being in the back of my brain, kind of like paving the way for me to do something that's like kind of heady. Right. And then uh, put a toilet in it. And yeah. Put a head in, right? <laughs> it's heady good. in every way. Yes. Um, that's a terrible pun. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it worked for our purposes. Worked. Okay. All yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I draw the line there. Yeah. That's a horrible joke. <laughs> no. Uh, so um, that's a good question. I mean, the thing is, is that I always I live by the credo that you don't have to be smart to laugh at a fart joke, but you have to be stupid not to. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I go. believe that in my soul. And, and also, too, um, it has to just be organic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use that word a lot. I, I, I try to be um, true to that idea that things have to develop in a really real and organic way. Um, when I came up, so when I started the movie, I knew I wanted to talk about death. Mm-hmm. And my philosophy on death, or the philosophy that I grapple with. But that's not a movie. You know, that isn't a movie. So once I figured out that I wanted death to eat a French guy, and to get diarrhea, because Mm -hmm. the French soul is rich like the French food. Right. I went, that's a movie. (laughs) Right. Now I I have a way in. Now Mm -hmm. I know that this is, that's a film. You know, that's a story. Yeah. And then everything else is what I really want to get, want to talk about. And I had, you know, I had my, the sound girl, Eugenie very sweet girl and very talented and did an amazing job. But she would, you know, she had to like listen to these farts for like hours. Oh, you sure. Know? And, uh, she, she turned to me and she was like, why are you putting farts in this beautiful film? Right. And I was like, there's four answers to that. And I will go through <laughs> them very briefly here now. Okay. The first one is, is that you have to even it out. If you go, if you go big, if you go high concept, mm-hmm. you have to give people a little break, yeah. right? Because then you're just a douchebag, right? You have to give them a little chance to laugh. You have to go down to a sophomoric level because you need, you need both of those extremes. Yeah. Uh, the other, that's one. The other reason is that farts are funny, right? That's, that's the most basic of all reasons. Sure. Right? They, they make me laugh. That's the second reason. The third reason is that uh, you need... So the film, I think, is very beautiful. I think most people tend to agree that there's an aesthetic beauty about it. Sure, sure. But I, I'm a big believer that films need to be a total experience. Mm. Now, this is a little bit more serious of an answer than the others, but equally as true. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer that films should be a, a total experience in terms of an audio experience, a sound design experience, and a visual experience. And uh, there also needs to be complementary elements that are also simultaneously contradictory, mm-hmm. and which gives the film depth and, and makes it interesting. Yeah. So, for instance, a big appeal of shooting in Rome was that it's so textural. You know, in, in Vegas, we have these like stucco walls and it's and concrete sidewalks and yeah. desert and it's boring and ugly. And I've shot everything I could, I could shoot here and I'm over it. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go across the world for a place that is more textural. Right. And texture is something that I think most cinematographers or, or modern ones are, are forgetting about in terms of their compositions. So uh, I wanted the, you to feel like you could feel the film mm-hmm. visually. Well, now it comes to audio. Sure. So how do I make audio textural and mm-hmm. give it um, 
you know, a tactile feeling. Well, then it comes down to the fourth reason, which I'll merge with the third, which is that it's organic to the story. Sure. It's about being sick. Yeah. You know, there's farts in it because the guy is sick and yeah. he has diarrhea. So there better be farts from yeah. the, in the reality of this movie and yeah. the framework of this film. But now this is an opportunity for me to add an element that is complementary to the film because it's as textural as the visuals, but it's contradictory because it's gross. Mm. So it's not beautiful the way the visuals are. It's gross, but it's textural the way that the images are. So they're complementary and contradictory simultaneously. And that gives the film layers. It gives the film texture. It makes the film have dimension. It's not just this one note thing. You're experiencing it totally differently. You feel like you can touch the movie, but hopefully now you feel like you can smell it too. Right. And so I want you to have that, uh, you know, that feeling, that, um, that sensory feeling. There's something yeah. called sensory cinema. And I'm a big believer in sensory cinema. And that's the way I chose to do it, as juvenile as it may seem on the outset. That it's very purposeful, mm-hmm. and that's why I did it. Well, it's a film about death, and so it's got to include everything that's life in there, right? right well, exactly. Yeah. Yes, that's not. You're not the first person to say that. Yeah, life is ugly and it's gross, mm-hmm. and it's sickness, and it's on the toilet, and that's our daily lives. So, <laughs> if we can't handle that, or if you can't see the beauty and humor in those things, then, um, then you know, then you don't deserve the film at its at its deepest. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Spe- speaking of the stomach ache that the guy has, uh, the the ginger soup recipe is that yeah. a recipe of yours? No, it's imaginary. Okay. It's it's an Italian thing, you know. Mm. I mean, I I I so I knew ginger soothed the stomach, mm-hmm. and I figured there's definitely some type of vegetable soup with ginger in it, mm-hmm. and so I did some research, and sure enough, and then uh, we just picked the most beautiful vegetables we can possibly pick. Yeah, it does look like a very pretty soup. Yeah, <laughs> everything was pretty. And that was, that's so that, okay, not to go off on a little kind of mini tangent, but again, I'm very, I think a lot about these things. You guys might be able to tell. I just mm. dissected why I put farts in for like 10 sure. minutes. But essentially, you know, I think a lot of cinematographers mistake uh, beautiful shots for the right shots. Mm. So I knew going into the film that I wanted to make it a very beautiful, picturesque film. I knew that I wanted to have this kind of uh, sightseeing quality of the movie. And so I had to earn that narratively. Mm. And so um, everything was purposefully as beautiful as could possibly be. And I won't ruin it for people. They should kind of come to these conclusions on their own. But there is narrative impetus for that. Mm. Okay. Well, I don't have any other uh, puzzle pieces, okay. uh, influences to throw your way. But I'm sure there's some Kubrick in there, knowing you. <laughs> so do you, do, you want to, uh, do you want to present something to me, well, uh, Kubrick yeah. related? Well, so I'll give you... So this was something that... I realized after, as mm-hmm. it always it always is. Sure, you know, I, like I never set out to make anything like anybody else's. Sure, of course. You know, it ends up being that way because they're in your brain, right? Yeah. Um, but no, I, I really make strong, deliberate efforts not to have anything be like anything. Right. But then, as I was editing it, I was thinking like, this looks like this basically is like if Woody Allen did a pass on a Bergman script. Mm-hmm. If, it, if it did, if Woody Allen did a pass on an Igmar Bergman script. We put it in a Fellini world and Kubrick shot it. Right. <laughs> and like that was kind of how like at the end, I'm not, not, not saying that the film is anywhere near those particular people. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it is. I don't know. It's up to the audience to decide, but I'm not comparing it. But if I had to be a ripoff of those people, those were probably, that's kind of what it is. It's sure. like a Bergman movie put with some 
Woody Allen jokes stuck in a Fellini film and with Kubrick's camera. When you first shared the trailer, uh, Woody Allen was the first vibes that I kind of got okay. from, from it. But then I, uh, you know, I didn't have any specifics though to, to bring up in the conversation, but definitely I saw that though there within some of what you were doing. For sure. sure. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, again, it's, I, 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 he's such a verbal filmmaker mm-hmm. and I'm trying to get further and further away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a lot of levity in the dialogue to get to get and to kind of keep things moving. You mm-hmm. get too mired in in the philosophy of it, and you know, sometimes you have to make the medicine bubblegum flavored, yeah, you know, for it to go down. And I just can't help but do things that are a little funny. You know, the you know the film is to me it's a drama with funny parts. Mm-hmm. You know, but to many people it's just kind of a straightforward comedy, and it's hard to really define it. Right. Uh, so at the end of the day, I'm very proud that I think that it doesn't. It kind of defies all these uh, influences. I really think it's its own thing and feels its own way. Um, but uh, I'd say if Kubrick was anything, it's really like the eye and the visuals of the film, mm-hmm. because I don't know if. if it's funny. I keep going back to Kubrick, and I sometimes I, you know, I've liked him for so long. I think to myself, like, why? Like, can I let's like academically look at this? Sure. Which is pointless and stupid, but I, <laughs> you know, you feel like doing it sometimes. And you know, I don't know if I was attracted to his films so young because he has this kind of OCD, you know, symmetrical framing, parallel line approach, and mm. my brain naturally is attracted to that. Right. Or if his influence is so deeply ingrained in me that now I now my instincts lean toward that. Mm. I'm not sure what it is. But there's a lot of um, frame-within-frame compositional use in Bizarro. I kind of wanted the, the camera to feel as if it was a participant in the film. So there's a lot of voyeuristic shots. There's, there's obstacle compositions, meaning the camera's behind things or some of it is obstructing some of the visuals or peering through doorways or peering down hallways or through windows. Mm-hmm. And so it's a framing device that's pleasing to the eye, but it's also a way to give autonomy to the camera and make it a character. It could be the universe. It could be God. It could be me. It could be Orson Welles. I don't know. It could be, you know, it could be anything. Um, and, and that kind of maybe comes from Kubrick a lot of, in a lot of ways. Sure. But again, it's something you notice after the fact. Right. And I did throw a Kubrick reference in there. Right. Deliberately. I don't know if anyone caught it. What what was that for you anybody want, listening? I say it? Yeah. Okay. So if you look at the shining pattern from mm-hmm. the hotel, the famous orange gross seventies carpet pattern, there is a sweater uh behind a character in one of the shots where it is visible. Oh, okay. I did not see that. So I need to go back for my third time and keep an eye out for that. Okay. It's in there. The pattern that's, is in there. That's awesome. Yeah. So I got uh, two more questions for you, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, first question, I mean, obviously there's always you know plenty more that could be done, more money, more of this, more of that, sure. but uh, is there any like major thing that you didn't get a chance to do with this that you were like, maybe like kind of rummaging around in your head or something with the idea? There, the only thing I can think of is there were more shots of death in the streets mm. doing more going more places mm-hmm. that i just couldn't do because of time sure that's really the only thing that i can think of that i didn't get a chance to do in every other way you know this is going to sound bad but i kind of had a low expectation for the film because i was by myself so i mm. thought well, i'm gonna just you know make the best thing i could make and i just planned on not releasing it if it wasn't good you know that was my goal right. <laughs> that was my plan uh, and so I actually ended up being able to do more than I thought I was going to be able to do mm-hmm. because of this restaurant sequence. 
Okay. So in the original script, for instance, there was no restaurant sequence. It was just in the in the. They're just in one spot the whole time, basically. And we, you know, we're out with the actors and we're eating dinner because there's a lot of dinners. So you eat a lot in mm, Italy. It's sure. that's not a cliche. It's true. A lot of carbs. A lot of carbs. <laughs> and this restaurant owner was like, "Well, next movie, come shoot in my place." You know, I'm so accustomed to in America where it's like, "Oh, well, I want to use an Olive Garden. I need to contact the, you know, the executive branch in Omaha and talk to some lady for four months if I could use it and get an insurance permit." And, and, and in Italy, he's like, "Shoot here right now!" You know, like, <laughs> who cares? And so I was like, well, we could do with this movie. And so with the yeah. magical nature of the film, you know, the film is magical yeah. in a lot of ways. Uh, and so I thought, oh, well, this can work. And so I, I, we, I retrofitted the script to incorporate the restaurant scene, which gives the film so much more life. Yeah. And, you know, gives us, I think it was a crucial thing to have in the film. So really the movie's bigger and better than I anticipated it ever being. I, I wanted it to be as epic as it could be. And I think I accomplished that. I wanted it to be very visual and not just be two people chatting. And I think it's more than just a conversation. So really it's exceeded my expectations in every way. And, you know, I'm very happy in how it turned out the, the way that it did. Mm. And I, um, and also too, to, to, to Brian Paulson's credit, my great, uh, partner in post, the guy that sat there with me for like 600 hours, I think quite literally, we did a very generic tally and it's about 600 hours Jeez. of post work. I mean, he made the film look and is, you know, he made it look, is what it is. It is what it is because of that guy. And he and I sat together forever and did, you know, he did the color and the incredible. And, um, we tried every single thing we could with like special effects and this and that. And there are special effects in the film, but we ended up cutting a lot because mm. we just liked what I shot. Right. You know, everything in that film is, I was there on the ground. We shot it. It was real people. And we added some things and we added some effects here and there. But for the most part, everything you're seeing, I really shot. Yeah. And so I feel really happy that we exhausted everything we could and we just went back to it being what I got in camera. Yeah. And so that feels very satisfying. Yeah, that's that's would be a really satisfying uh, thing. And that actually leads into my final question, which is, uh, you know, you strike me as somebody who you know, looks at their own career in, in a sense of like an overall filmography kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Is this a movie you pictured being in your filmography <laughs> as a younger filmmaker, like earlier on? That's a great question. No, I, I think it surprised, it surprised a lot of viewers and I think it surprised me too. Nice. You know, it, it really did. Like I said, I, I really try to be always working at my extremes, you know, where, where, do, where can my, my ambition take me? And how far can I push it? And mm. how far can I go? And I think, uh, you know, I, I saw this opportunity and it was something I wanted to do for a long time. But yeah, to have an Italian language film under my belt, shot on location with these amazing actors in these amazing places, I did not see it. Yeah. You know, and I think it pushed me as an artist in a lot of ways, it made me a better filmmaker. I learned a lot about the craft that I knew a lot in theory, but I had now had an opportunity to put into practice and it made me a better technician. And it, um, it, it surprised me. I think it, it, uh, it feels right now. It mm -hmm. feels like me. You know, that's another thing I'm kind of like proud about is that I made this movie in a different language, different country. And yet it's so me. Oh, it definitely is. That's something that struck me about it. I mean, you know, uh, take this how you will, but that whole thing we talked about with the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the smart 
film with the potty humor, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. that whole mix of that. I mean, that is so like, you know, that's what I kind of want to see out of out of a guy like Chris Cranock. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to people that have watched my other work, I don't know if I have any fans lingering around, but if I have fans, I think I satisfied them. I satiated them, if mm-hmm. you will. I definitely <laughs> uh, raised their expectations. I wanted to blow them out of the water. And I think that we accomplished that. You know, I think it's it's epic on every scale, really, and to, except for its runtime. You know, it's a little it's a little epic in a way. You know, mm-hmm. which is another reason why we felt justified in doing the overture because overtures were usually intended for like long epic films, like Lawrence of Arabia and Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, like these massive films. And they, you know, you're in there for three and a half hours anyway. So why don't you sit down and relax? Sure. And uh, so we felt that you know, again, not like that it was on par necessarily, but we wanted to have it have that sweeping quality and uh so yeah so i think i was able to make a movie that was uniquely me and yet totally push myself out of my comfort zone and pay a lot of respect to the films that came before me that i admire and love um you know the the italian neorealist movement and how that kind of moved into something else entirely because of fellini kind of going into that realm and him looking within and making these really personal films um, the French, and then of course the French cinema of the sixties and seventies, mm-hmm. a big influence as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased and excited and hopefully it blows everyone's mind. That's the hope. That's the hope. Yeah. yeah let me ask you a question. Okay. So you know me, right? We're friends. We've been, I've been on your show a bunch. So your first movie, first viewing is kind of tainted. Would you say, would you agree with that? That it's tainted because you know me. Very possibly. Um, well, like I said, I I feel like I didn't quite know what I was going into, yeah. even though I know you, and yeah. I feel like I got more of what I should have expected of, of of what I think of your sensibilities. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, but but maybe I just didn't quite know that that's what it was going to be based <laughs> on some of like the stills you were sharing and stuff like that. I, I just don't think I really quite knew where the story was going to go. Okay, you know? that's yeah. good. And now the second viewing... Did it? Did you feel like you had a movie experience? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. you know because yeah, you at that point, you know, you really and I, I would say during the first time through as well. Once you kind of get your bearings of where this story is <laughs> taking you, you know, but certainly during the second time of like, uh, you know, getting getting what the story is and and getting who these characters actually are, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I. Uh, 100% even knew that that was going to be, you know, the death character, like right. going in, you know what I mean, or anything like that. So w- once you're once you're on board for for what this ride is going to be, you you know where you're going. Okay, good. I'd like that. I'm happy it's described as a ride. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. People have said it's like an experience. Yeah, and that's a huge honor to us. And you know, we you know we want you to to have a fun time and think about things that you don't ordinarily want to think about like the movie is you know it's demanding of its of its audience Mm -hmm. you know it makes you wait a little bit it it takes time to start it it makes you kind of relax and and get into it it makes you contemplate things you wouldn't ordinarily contemplate it's in a different language so for most many viewers so they're reading subtitles so we put like every roadblock that you could imagine for a film that we really want to be as inviting as possible right and so it's a huge huge honor to us that people are responding to it the way that they are and so much like they, they're really, really feeling it, mm-hmm. and that's what it's for: you know, yeah. is to feel it and to enjoy it and to kind of bask in it. I, we wanted it to be a world, yeah. And that's kind of where like an Amarcord Fellini kind of comes from. Is I, I always admired him for his world building, 
Okay. Today we think of world building now as like Marvel, right? Right. You know, but like you know, when you sat down to watch a Bergman film or a Fellini film or a Kubrick film, the people they're like the core influences. Now there's all these sub influences as well that I could name for five hours, but mm-hmm. I won't. But but those like core guys, the Mount Rushmore of my heroes, right? They they uh, they built worlds. You are in that whole world. You can yeah. be in a Kubrick film and feel like it's a Kubrick film, but he never repeated himself. He never pandered to his image, and Fellini was the same way. Yeah. Just rewatching Am Record the other day with Brian, I it reminded me of what an influence it was. Yeah. It wasn't something I really thought about. Um but oh and then it's I it's worth mentioning before we wrap it up is that uh kind of getting into this, kind of going back to what I said earlier about how I really uh respect short films as a medium and I really wanted to make the best short film I could possibly make mm. is I went back to some of the great shorts mm. and I went back to the red balloon. Okay. The Red Balloon was something I watched because that's about a 30-minute movie in France, and it won Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars, Hmm. and it was a French short film. Wow. Wild. That's crazy. I watched uh, one of the biggest things, and one of the very first influences, uh, back kind of back to Fellini, was a movie called Toby Dammit. He made a short film that was part of an omnibus film, Mm -hmm. a collection of movies by other directors as well. That was all based on Edgar Allan Poe stories. Okay. And his, uh, his is called Toby Dammit, and it's based on a story called Never Bet the Devil Your Head. Hmm. And it's a superb, like, 40-minute short. And so I kind of went back and watched a lot of the great short films as well to really understand its structure. And it's become so structure-centric. Hmm. And uh, so those were big influences, too. Right on. Right on. Well... I don't know. I think we, I think we kind of uh, got into a lot of good stuff during this conversation. I hope, I, so. I, I hope to uh, one day, maybe you know, one of the festivals here in Vegas or something, to be able to see this with a crowd. I think that would be just like a really fun thing. Well, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think. I mean, the film was intended to be viewed in a theater, yeah. which is crazy in a time where I was going to be a short film during COVID. Right. Uh, I know everyone's going to watch it on their phones, and that's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing wrong. I mean, there is a lot wrong with watching. There's a lot wrong. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's <laughs> it's. There's a whole thing, a whole bunch of stuff wrong with yeah. watching it on a phone. But we're not going to condemn you if you watch it on your phone. You know, I have the analytics. Everyone's watching it on their phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there, I mean, to me, it's an experiential film. I hope people experience it. Not necessarily as I intended, but just in whichever uh, in a venue that allows them to have their own experience with it, right? You know, and uh, we wanted Bizarro to kind of feel like this lost film of the '60s, like this. You know, that's like there's all these great stories of movies that were lost. Like the, one of my favorite stories is The Passion of Joan of Arc. It was lost from the late '20s until like the '80s, hmm. and and everyone thought that it was totally gone from the earth. Uh, and then someone found it in a, like a Norwegian mental institution closet. Mm-hmm. And it was like in perfect condition or something. So there's all these really insane stories about cinema because it was started as a gimmick. And so, so much early cinema was, has been lost or it's burned up because of its nitrate film stock or it was this damaged is, beyond repair. This is reminding me of B. Rosenberg or Rosenberg. <laughs> right, <my> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Right, exactly. There and there's so many people like the, you know Janice and the Cl- Criterion Collection that are restoring these old films. Yeah. So you know Bizarro kind of has these scratches in it, and it's you know has pops and and thick you know uh, grain on it. Mm-hmm. And the goal was yeah, it takes place in a, it's a modern film it takes place in 2019 or 2020. But I, I we wanted it to have like this soul of this old like forgotten movie of the 60s. Right. So if you if you 
see it in a theater, that's really how it was intended to be viewed. Yeah. With 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 people. So hopefully we get a chance to do that after COVID. Yeah, I, I hope so, man. Uh, well, why don't you tell people where they can uh, find out about your work and hopefully get a chance to see it if they can't yeah, see they it in a theater. Right. But, yeah. Well, the thing, yeah. So, I mean, your, like I said, your phone is fine, but try to do on maybe a big computer screen or your TV if possible. That'd be awesome. <laughs> um, and uh, someone said, uh, watch it in the dark, which I thought was really cool. So, all okay. yeah, if you're not watching in the dark, go ahead and do that. That might be good. So you can always find my stuff at chriscranock.com. Right now it's kind of dedicated just to Bizarro, but it's usually just my homepage with all, all of my work. Uh, you can go to bizarromovie.com and see the trailer and get, sign up for a, the password. Right now the film is on Vimeo in its full version. Uh, you can just search for it or f- search Cranockian Pictures, my page. But it is password protected as we pursue the festival circuit. So mm. for the next year or so we'll be really aggressively hitting the festivals. But you can reach out to me. And I will get you a password, and then you can check it out. So, and then also on social media, of course, Instagram and Facebook. You can just find me by my name, Chris Cranock, and uh, I can get you the movie. Absolutely. And you, everybody listening, you could also uh, just email me, and I'll forward the email over to Chris as well if you can't find him. So. Excellent. That would be great. As many people to see it as we can. That'd be awesome. Awesome. Well, Chris, uh, do, do you think we covered a lot of stuff here today? I think there are people are going to be very happy across the world, hopefully, that we got into some good stuff. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, hey, thanks for doing it. I, I think this was a fun conversation, and I look forward to getting you back on a uh, piecing it together one of these days. We'll uh, we'll do some puzzle pieces. Awesome. Well, no, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I mean, you didn't have to do this, so I know I'm a buddy, but I appreciate it anyway that you took the time that you enjoyed the film, that you had thoughtful questions about it. That's our hope is that it makes people get interested. So thank you. Hey, Lady One. Yes, JC. Did you like that movie? Yeah, it was good. But, you know, in the end, I really think they should have... Wait! Save it for the podcast. Oh, yeah. Our podcast, Screen Fix, where me, you, and a guest fix a movie. Available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also find us on Twitter and Instagram at ScreenFixPod. What a totally natural sounding promo. Check us out. (laughs) Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris Cranock about his new film, Bizarro e Fantastico. Like I said at the top of the show and in that closing there, uh, make sure to get in touch if you would like to watch the movie and haven't had the opportunity to yet. Uh, We will get you a password so you can go check it out. It's definitely something I recommend you get a chance to watch. So that does it for today's episode. That was a long one, wasn't it? We had a lot to talk about. So Uh, as always, I want to remind you to make sure you are subscribed to Piecing It Together on your podcast app of choice. You can, of course, also rate us and review us over on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. We would really appreciate it if you are enjoying the show, if you go on one of those two sites and let us know about it. Uh, That always... It always is great to get feedback from the listeners, uh, letting us know letting us know that you're liking it. And also, it may or may not help get us uh, higher in the rankings. But I hear that's a myth. But you know what? I like seeing the numbers go up anyway, so screw it. If it's a myth, it's a myth. Anyway, you can also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join the Facebook group Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. Support our Patreon. Share, share, share. I really, really appreciate it when you guys share the show. So keep on sharing. 
And those are, those are the things to do. Those are the things to do if you're enjoying piecing it together and want to keep enjoying piecing it together. And I appreciate all of you that are out there listening. So let's close this thing out with a piece of music like I always do. And I think I'm going to go back to the compilation album that I put out earlier this year, Beater Original Motion Picture Soundtrack, and play a piece off of that. How's that sound? This is from a film called To Cherish the Time that I scored a few years ago. And this was the like main theme music that played over the credits. It is just kind of self-titled To Cherish the Time. So this is from the Beater Original Motion Picture Soundtrack album, which is available now on iTunes, on Spotify, on all those places. So enjoy it, and we'll be back with more Piecing It Together coming out real soon.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.